2: Uh, My name is John Malcolm. I'm the vice president of the Institute for Constitutional Government and the director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies here. Uh, More significantly, however, for, for purposes of today's discussion, I'm a former federal prosecutor and spent part of my career as an associate independent counsel investigating fraud and public corruption at the Department of Housing and Urban Development during the Reagan administration. We are here today indeed to discuss special counsels, uh, which is obviously very much in the news today because of the investigation that is currently being conducted uh, by special counsel Robert Mueller. Special counsels have a very rich history in this country. The first special counsel, John Henderson, was appointed by Ulysses S. Grant in 1875 to investigate the whiskey ring scandal. Uh, That scandal involved an extensive network of bribes, in fact millions of dollars, paid to government officials by distillers in order to evade federal income taxes on the whiskey that they produced and sold. Given all of the discussion about whether President Trump will or even could fire Bob Mueller, it is perhaps ironic that President Grant, in fact, fired Henderson, because he thought that Henderson had made statements about Grant to a grand jury, which he considered to be impertinent. <laughs> destruction of justice? Well, if that was Grant's intent, it did not work. Following intense criticism, Grant appointed a new special prosecutor, James Broadhead, and the investigation continued. It's of course important to note that special counsels are not the same as independent counsels. Pursuant to the Ethics and Government Act, an independent counsel was appointed by a three-judge panel of the DC Circuit Court of Appeals and was truly independent from the Justice Department. For all intents and purposes, an independent counsel was the Attorney General when it came to pursuing the specific matter that led to his or her appointment. That is not the case for special counsels, at least in theory. The days of the independent counsel ended, at least for now, when the act expired in 1999 and was not reauthorized. So Robert Mueller is supposed to be governed by DOJ guidelines. And his investigation is being overseen by the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, because the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, has recused himself. This may be significant, because under governing Uh, Office of Legal Counsel guidelines, a sitting president cannot be indicted. But where is the Mueller investigation going? While Bob Mueller was appointed to investigate potential Russian interference into the 2016 election, his investigation seems to have strayed a bit far from that. This has been known to happen. One of our speakers today understands this phenomenon full well when an investigation into a failed real estate investment involving a parcel of land along the White River in Arkansas, turned into an investigation about whether President Clinton lied and encouraged others to lie about an adulterous relationship with a White House intern during the course of a civil lawsuit that had been filed against him. Assuming we agree that there are circumstances under which someone, other than Congress, should investigate a president, what is the best mechanism for doing so? Will such investigations inevitably be portrayed as being partisan? Are there things that can and should be done to minimize that likelihood and to maximize the possibility that the public will accept the results of that investigation? And what role does Congress play in fulfilling its own oversight responsibilities while an investigation is ongoing? And do presidents have an obligation? either ethical or legal, to cooperate in such investigations by, say, waiving executive privilege or agreeing to testify uh, during interviews or before a grand jury. As a practical matter, are special counsels really different from independent counsels? And so far as we know, is Rod Rosenstein doing a good job uh, supervising this investigation? Uh, And what do we think of the job that Bob Mueller is doing? We have two outstanding panelists with us here today to address some of these questions. We will first hear from Ken Starr, who has had a very distinguished legal career. He clerked for Chief Justice Warren Burger on the Supreme Court and served in a number of significant positions, including a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, Solicitor General of the United States, Independent Counsel in the Whitewater Investigation, Dean of Pepperdine Law School, and President and Chancellor of Baylor University. He is also the author of two books, including the recently published book, Contempt, A Memoir of the Clinton Investigation. I have in fact read his book, and it is terrific, and I commend it to you. Then we will hear from Andrew McCarthy. Andy was an assistant United States attorney in New York, and he was the lead prosecutor in the 1995 case against Sheikh Omar Abdul Rahman, the so-called blind Sheikh, and 11 others that resulted in all all of them being convicted on terrorism-related charges. He was also involved uh, in the prosecution of some individuals who were connected with the bombing of the US embassies in in Kenya and Tanzania. He is the director of the Center for Law and Counterterrorism at the Foundation for Defense and Democracies, and he is a regular contributor to Fox News and National Review. With that, Judge Starr, the floor is yours.
1: Well, thank you. I may remain seated if that's uh, all right, and uh, provide a, a series of reflections, really, just to get the conversation going or to continue the conversation. There's one dimension, since impeachment is in the air with the midterms ahead, that I thought I would begin with. Uh, so I'm going to begin sort of at the at at the end, and then hopefully scroll back uh, to the beginning. In stark contrast to the independent counsel statute, the regulations under which Rod Rosenstein appointed Bob Mueller are silent with respect to the issue of impeachment. The independent counsel law was acrid with impeachment. Those are the words that uh, Antonin Scalia used in his dissent in Morrison versus Olson. When one thinks of the context out of which the law emerged, namely Watergate, and we think back to that time, for some of you entirely history, but for those of us who lived through that time, in 1978 when the Ethics in Government Act was passed, the idea was so fresh that the impeachment of the president was a moral imperative and he resigned, sparing the country. Uh, the articles themselves and then uh, the trial that would likely have resulted in his removal, obviously, uh, speculation. And so when Congress turned to codifying the uh, concept of a special prosecutor, as then called, then eventually more mildly called, the independent counsel, now we have the even milder special counsel, uh, what Congress really had in mind was We want this law officer to be out there going about and sending us information so we can impeach someone. And it therefore is little surprise that Bernie Nussbaum, the first counsel to President Clinton, when the issue became should President Clinton reauthorize or sign this reauthorization of the statute into law, he said, and I describe this scene in the book, Mr. President, this is a dagger aimed at the heart of the presidency. So it was as if uh, Bernie Nussbaum, a very able, shrewd New York litigator, had read the Scalia dissent uh, and took it to heart. The issue that is so intriguing to so many of us in terms of the mechanism for assuring honest government and reminding ourselves of what uh, was stated by Mr. Madison in the Federalist Papers, that if men were angels would make that gender neutral now. If people were were angels, government would not be necessary. But there was the whiskey ring. There was, in fact, wrongdoing. There was Teapot Dome. I think it does behoove us to say that in Teapot Dome, the Senate found what may be the immaculate approach to an investigation of either the president or those close around him or her, and that is the appointment of two special prosecutors or special counsels confirmed by the United States Senate, one from each party. That seemed to work out pretty darn well in Teapot Dome, but the Teapot Dome mechanism has not been tried since. I wonder why that, that is so. The special counsel mechanism was, I think, as untidy as it was, was all right. It was working fine. But then, Archibald Cox being fired so inflamed the country that not only did we have the appointment then of Leon Jaworski, to be, but Congress said, we have to do something. Reform, reform. Which reminds me of the story of the backbencher in the House of Commons who stood up and yelled at the top of his aging lungs, Reform, don't speak to us of reform. Things are bad enough as they are.
0: <laughs>
1: and so it was, I think, with the independent council statute. What was wrong? The, the the mechanism of political pressure and moral outrage ended up having this corrective function so that now here we are with special council regulations that have essentially been in place uh, for – 20-plus years since 1999, or or going on 20 years, I guess I should say. And these regulations seem to have stood the test of time. We shall see. That brings me then to Bob Mueller and the expansion of of jurisdiction. The regulations are very clear. When you parse the words of of, of the regulations under which Bob Mueller was appointed, you cannot have a rogue prosecutor out just deciding, I think I would like to look into this, And I would like to look into that without a check. It is very clear under the regulations that Bob Mueller must have the specific approval of Rod Rosenstein as the acting attorney general in order to open some new avenue of uh, investigation of inquiry. What was not understood, as I try to describe in the book, this just kind of eluded the American people, uh, and so perhaps we can... Keith, take part of the blame for not engaging in vigorous enough uh, education, but that wasn't our job. It was really Congress's job and the Justice Department's job to engage in the public education function, not ours. But in any event, it was absolutely clear under the Independent Counsel statute that for an expansion of, investi- of investigative authority, the Independent Counsel had to go to the Attorney General of the United States. There was that check. In the statute itself and then the Attorney General would make the assessment and hers was I believe non reviewable we can talk about that in other words, it would be no check on the Attorney General's uh, authority to say no well I'm not going to expand your investigation if she agreed then she next checkpoint would go to the special division the three-judge uh, panel of the US Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit And in theory, they could say no. I think it would raise separation of powers questions if they did. But at least the nation had, if nothing else, the symbolic approbation of three judges, and one of whom was appointed during my tenure by a a president of the the other party. So there were these sort of checks and, and balances in place before the Lewinsky investigation began. So as I describe in the book, and again, this is something... John, that I felt was important, uh, at least as part of the historical record, given the lack of uh, understanding, misunderstanding, and just the political rhetoric that was flying around at at the time, that there was in fact a review by Janet Reno herself of the evidence. She had terrific lawyers, career prosecutors around around her, and in fairly short order, she made the determination that whether Monica Lewinsky and others had committed perjury, other offenses against the rule of law, had to be investigated. And the logical shop, alas, some people draw the short straw, the logical (laughs) shop to do that investigation was your humble correspondent here today. Now, one of the things I do in the book, in this relationship, and I think it's why the independent counsel statute simply cannot work quite apart from the constitutional questions raised so brilliantly by Nino Scalia in, in his dissent in Morrison versus Olson, is that inevitably there's going to be a division turning into a gulf between the independent counsel and the Department of Justice and the attorney general personally. As I recount in sorrow, I hope it's not anger, Janet Reno transformed herself from a supporter of the investigation to an active and deliberate opponent of the investigation because the stakes were just very high. I talked to her only once about the relationship during the Lewinsky phase and that's when she said I'm now going to investigate you and as i describe in the book attorney general reno i think that intrudes into the independence of the independent council i don't care (laughs) i'm paraphrasing Uh, i'm going to avoid so that gulf that suddenly developed that vast gulf is something that the special council provisions simply avoid entirely Because you see, and it's symbolized, Andy, I think, as I pass the baton, by the fact that indictments returned by the Mueller investigation are typically announced not by Bob Mueller, but by Rod Rosenstein. Because you see, Bob Mueller is an officer of the Justice Department accountable to the Attorney General. And in that structural reform a good reform, I think we are structurally consistent with our separation of powers in a much better place. It does carry with it certain things such as the president will not be indicted unless the Department of Justice changes its fairly long-held and well-articulated constitutional view. I don't agree with that as a matter of constitutional law. I respect it as a perfectly reasonable Position, and since I have the floor until you, so there's a yellow, there's a yellow light on. I use this hypothetical in the wake of Clinton versus Jones, which I think is another example of President uh, Clinton's uh, contempt for the rule of law. Uh, so he took the position, as his, his people who lived through it will recall very vividly, that the president should not be subjected to civil process uh, throughout his tenure. Uh, as the president of the United States. And the Supreme Court of the United States rejected that proposition nine to nothing with a very thoughtful concurring opinion by Stephen Breyer. And the thoughtful opinion, which I commend to everyone in light of the currency of of these issues, and respect for the presidency, which we all very much agreed with, respect for the presidency means that his schedule must be protected and so forth, the district judge, overseeing a grand jury investigation or what have you, must be very respectful of the president's um, uh, needs, North Korea, whatever it might be, a a replacement for Nikki Haley, whatever the object. You need to be very respectful, but that doesn't mean that the president gets a pass for however many years, as many as seven to, to, to eight years. Now, in light of that, unless the Supreme Court were to say we were wrong in Clinton versus Jones. I don't expect that. Imagine the following hypothetical. This is on the indictment of the president. The president, and we're going to make it a hypothetical president, but presidents tend to play golf, right? They just do. So Eisenhower, I guess, started. It. No, William Howard Taft started. It. So anyway, so imagine the following situation that we're out on the golf course, and the president, in a fit of anger, clubs his caddy just you know, you, you've been laughing at me. I shank the ball and so forth. So here, take that. The the caddy comes to his senses and wanders over to the emergency room, says, yeah, concussion and so forth. He said, OK, I'm calling a lawyer. I'm going to sue this guy. Well, he's the president of the United States. I can do that under Clinton versus Jones. Well, OK. So the courts of whatever, uh, we'll say Kansas. Uh, this, let's make this an, uh, a post hoc Eisenhower event. It's hard to imagine, but just stay stay with me. Then the caddy says, well, this is going to take a long time. I need to bring Ike to justice. I'm going to go over to the district attorney's office. That was a brutal attack, assault. I survived it by my very good. And then is told, well, you can sue him civilly, but the district attorney has no authority to indict the president for this kind of, of battery. I don't think so. But that's the position of the Justice Department, so I leave you with that very, I hope, insightful, hypothetical. Do you have this anomaly that the great public interest in the enforcement of the criminal law gets suspended, but the interest of one individual in achieving civil justice does not? Seems odd. Very odd. Um,
0: <laughs> well, it's it's uh, it's an honor to be here. It's always an honor to be here at, uh, at Heritage, but... Uh, To be on a panel with John and uh, Judge Starr in particular is is a thrill and and a delight. Uh, I I do want to pick up where you left the baton, though, because I I do think the structure that we now have is as faithful to the Constitution uh, as anything we've had and anything we probably could have. I mean, you could tinker with it here and there. And therein lies the difficulty, which is we're trying to do something – through the mechanisms of law, that probably was not something that the framers intended in the first place. What the mm. framers thought would happen, I think, is that Congress would rein in presidential excess. And if you think about it, just, you know, we make some sort of casual assumptions about reining in the president now, right, because of, of what we have available to us. But until about 1870, there was no. Justice Department as we understand it, right um, there was no FBI until 1908. Um, it's not conceivable I, I I would think that what we have in the way of federal law enforcement now and the whole um, the, the whole bureaucratic extent of it is something that um, well maybe some of the framers would have anticipated it, but i I doubt it. Uh, and I think, for what it's worth, that what they believed was that they armed the Congress with what, were, what was intended to be the the arsenal for reining in presidential excess. Um, and what we're now trying to do is bring the president and presidential excess, have it reined in by the powers of law enforcement under circumstances where in our constitutional system, law enforcement is an executive power. And we really don't want it to be, for for a number of good policy reasons, we don't want law enforcement to be carried out outside the executive branch. So I think part of the problem that we have here is always going to be that what we're trying to do probably cuts against the grain of all the assumptions of our system from the start, um, so how do we how do we go about it? Um, I, I think we find instantly that th- the framers were quite right when they thought that um, it, it was better to bring a president into line with the with political means rather than um, the means of law enforcement because. We instantly see, and we see in particular, I think, with the Mueller investigation, that regardless of what the laws are, it's the politics that governs the situation, right? So, I mean, we have this we have this uh, set of regulations. We have the uh, special counsel, who is part of the Justice Department's chain of command. He's he's basically a, a federal prosecutor under a, a separate set of regulations, but nonetheless functioning as a federal prosecutor who has to rely on the Justice Department for uh, for what his jurisdiction is, um, probably all works right on an organizational chart. But the fact of the matter is whether a special counsel gets appointed or not is usually a function as much of the politics of the situation as the, the apparent evidence that there's any Criminal violation. Uh, and what we have seen happen again and again is that independent counsels end up getting appointed because of the political noise in a situation, not necessarily because of what the quantum of evidence is that there is a, there is a crime. Uh, in this particular instance, um, we have a situation where the Deputy Attorney General in appointing the special counsel relied on the testimony of the FBI director, then Jim Comey, in in, I think it was uh, early March, maybe mid-March of 2017. And when Comey, in that statement that he made, in his House testimony, uh, announced that they they actually had an investigation, the FBI did, uh, of Russian interference in the election, highly unusual for the FBI to, to uh, publicly announce that they have an investigation, but also announced that there was a strand of that investigation that involved the possibility that the Trump campaign had coordinated in Russia's interference with the election. I, I think the problem with that, if you're going to base an investigation on it, is that Director Comey, flatly said that what the FBI was conducting was a counterintelligence investigation. The regulations that we have for special counsels do not provide for appointing a special counsel for counterintelligence investigation. And there's a very good reason for that. In most counterintelligence investigations in the Justice Department, there is no prosecutor. Basically, the prosecutors are there to help the intelligence agents in the Bureau, in the event that they need to go to the FISA court to get a surveillance warrant, uh, if they are looking to do some kind of investigation that's actually covered by the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that's the support role that Justice Department prosecutors play. But it's not like in the criminal division where typically the FBI and the prosecutors will work together with an eye toward building what everybody assumes in the equation is all is eventually going to be charges and an indictment uh, a counterintelligence investigation is essentially an information gathering exercise it's not intended to build a, a criminal case and in fact one of the big controversies that we had during the 1990s was the fact that the Justice Department interposed what was known as the wall between The law enforcement side of the FBI's house and the the counterintelligence side of the FBI's house uh, actually interposed this regulatory wall so that they had difficulty cooperating with each other for precisely the reason that the Justice Department was concerned about abuse if the FBI and the Justice Department were to use their counterintelligence powers as a pretext for conducting a criminal investigation so it seems to me that if you flash forward 20 years what was scandalous back in the in the 90s because uh, was the thought that you would actually use these counterintelligence powers uh, a- as cover for for conducting a criminal investigation and now what we actually have is sort of an official blessing of using counterintelligence powers to conduct a criminal investigation Under circumstances where the regulations that uh, Special Counsel Mueller operates under under, actually say that you have to have a crime. They say that there must be a crime, there must be a factual recitation of what the crime is um, in the appointment of the Special Counsel. Uh, and the idea behind that, I believe, is that the articulation of the crime becomes the parameters of the investigation. It, be- it becomes a-, a sort of a boundary or set of boundaries for the special counsel's jurisdiction with the understanding that the special counsel then has to go back to the uh, deputy attorney general to get additional authority if he wants to investigate things outside that ambit. Um, but I'll... I'll- I'll close with this. I think that the politics of these situations so overwhelmed the law and did so in this investigation that one of the very first things that Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein did after appointing special counsel Mueller was to have a meeting on Capitol Hill with leaders in the Senate. And when they came out of the meeting, what uh, I, I guess it was Senator Schumer who was the, uh, the minority leader and some other senators said was that they had gotten assurances from, from Rosenstein that special counsel Mueller would be able to chase the facts wherever he decided to chase them and that there'd be no limitations on his, on his investigation. He, would, he could follow the facts wherever he decided they went. So you had a situation where you're appointing a prosecutor with no crime, and then you're making a guarantee to the people who are going to exercise oversight over this uh, that wherever the prosecutor decides the facts goes, the, the prosecutor can chase them. So we're really in a situation now which is, to my mind, antithetical to the American tradition. The American tradition is we have a crime And then we assign the prosecutor to investigate the crime. And in this situation, it seems we appointed a prosecutor and told them to go on ahead and try to find a crime and have no limitations on that pursuit. And that's simply not the way it's supposed to work.
2: So in a moment, I'm going to open it up to questions uh, from the audience. Uh, I would ask uh, when you're acknowledged to just introduce yourself, say who you are, uh, and then the proper way to ask a question is to say one or two sentences and end it with a question mark. <laughs> if it goes beyond that, uh, I will be cutting uh, people off. Let me throw out two or three things, and you can respond to whichever of these you, you want. Uh, so, Andy, you just made the, the point that politics often overwhelms the law in these sorts of situations. Is it possible for a regular U.S. Attorney's Office uh, to conduct an investigation into the president or cabinet members, or is that out of the question? Let me throw the other cu- questions out there on the table, and you can pick which, which you want. And what of the role of, of Congress? I mean, if the whole point here is to, at least with respect to the president, prepare potential articles of impeachment or a report, um, Congress is waiting this whole time for this investigation to take place. It pulls its punches on oversight uh, hearings. Congressional investigations certainly can screw-up prosecutions, saw that with John Poindexter and Oliver North, but, but is Congress right to sort of take a back step or, or uh, you know, wait in the back while the special counsel does his work, or would it be better if they were more aggressive in terms of uncovering these facts for themselves and having oversight hearings? And I guess my last question, uh, Ken, I'll, I'll direct towards you. I was, um, I was struck in your book that you made the point that you consider uh, that the president has an obligation, I assume it was an ethical obligation and not a legal obligation, to cooperate uh, with this investigation against uh, his activities. And I'm curious as to why you think that's so, uh, particularly given the potential jeopardy that a president faces by doing so. And if you do think it's so, How far does that extend? So I'll I'll throw all that out there and and let you all pick and choose what you'd like to respond to. Um,
0: Well, I spent 20 years uh, in the U.S. Attorney's Office that uh, likes to call itself the Sovereign District of New York. (laughs) Um, And I think if you took a poll, you'd probably get 100% return that we could investigate anything. Uh, and with no limitations, and people would clearly believe that part of the thrill of working in a place like that is the ethos of the office was people actually did believe that there was nothing, um, that, that there was nothing that we couldn't do in the sense of getting around any compl- complications that might encumber uh, an investigation. Um, you know, I, I think down here on planet Earth. Um, <laughs> So the way things probably work is that it, everything is a matter of um, of, of personnel more than um, is there a structure that can make this work? So I think if you had the right president and you had the right United States attorney, sure, a United States attorney's office could conduct the investigation in integrity with integrity. But the only way that you could carry that off. and and this, again, I think is the injection of politics in it, is if the public bought it, which is to say, does the public really believe that this prosecutor has the integrity, notwithstanding that he is a subordinate executive official to investigate his superiors? And does the public really believe that this president uh, has the integrity or even the the belief that I've done nothing wrong to say, have at it, and when you come back, I'll be vindicated? I wouldn't I wouldn't want to um I wouldn't want to sell that as a as a structure I think you'd have to be very lucky to make that work you'd have to have exactly the right people to make that work As far as Congress is concerned I really think Congress has become dependent not just on the on the justice department but probably on um uh, many of the uh, the the agencies and uh, and bureaucracies that it that it has created. Uh, one of the ways we see that, just to, to step out of this for a second, in Brett Kavanaugh's hearings over the last few weeks, this idea that, you know, oh my God, we can't possibly go on unless we have an FBI investigation, unless we, you know, give them another week to look at it. Um, you know, the staffs of the committees, and particularly the Judiciary Committee, um, are very good and they're pretty robust and they staff up when they have things like, um, you know, Supreme Court nominations, and the people they go out and hire are people who used to do what I do for a living or or people used to you know, uh, be federal investigators, FBI agents, and the like. They're perfectly capable of doing their own investigations. That's not to say that the bureau isn't value added. Of course it is, um, but. In a, I, I think in, in an impeachment situation, the idea that Congress would have to wait on and depend on the FBI to do an investigation that the Constitution really obliges um, the Congress to do itself because it is the body that is supposed to be overseeing the peer branch, uh, we'd be in a bad place, I think, if if they had to rely on the FBI to do it. That's not to say they wouldn't. And there's certainly no small amount of waiting around to see what Mueller is going to do, Uh, the idea being that Congress, for whatever reason, can't do whatever it would do until they see what Mueller has done. Um, I I think that's a dependent relationship that's not good for the country, but there's no reason they can't do it themselves.
1: Uh, Three points in addition to your uh, question, uh, three, but I'll I'll be brief. Uh, Picking up uh, on what... uh, Andy just said, we have people here in the audience who are deeply familiar with and experienced in congressional investigation. Keith, you may want to give a speech and the Mm -hmm. have a a private session with those who are interested in this. Uh, And I align myself with what uh, Andy has just said. The founding generation, uh, again speaking through the the Federalist uh, Papers call for energy in the executive, and there are times when I think many of us would say, let's see greater energy in the Congress. And I would cite an historical a fact that supports that notion as opposed to a culture of deference, allow the special counsel or the independent counsel, independent counsel to go forward. Uh, during the Senate select uh, hearings on Watergate, the breakthrough about the uh, Oval Office tapes came through the Senate process, uh, not through uh, the special prosecutors' offices, the examination in the United States Senate, and it was a staff in, uh, in, in interview with Mr. Butterfield, who said, "By the way, there are tapes, uh, and the rest is all history. Without those tapes, history may have had a very different uh, uh, turn because it was the tapes themselves that convinced." Thoughtful Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee that the President of the United States, for however long, did in fact enter into a conspiracy to obstruct justice. Uh, so there, there you have an example of energy. With respect to what uh, Andy first said, that we can go get it here in the sovereign Southern District of of of, of New York. Uh, th- there have been lamentations, including coming out of this venerable institution. Uh, to the effect that we have wildly over-criminalized uh, the law and that we have intruded deeply uh, into the province of the states in our federal republic. The Supreme Court will have before it, now that there are nine justices, and I'm thankful for that, on the Supreme Court, will have an argument coming up uh, with respect to the concept of dual sovereignty. I see Nod saying, I bet there's some people who've been involved in this policy issue, but it's ultimately a constitutional issue, which is same bank robbery, state of Alabama gets a criminal conviction, and the sentence is one year or whatever, and the federal government says, in effect, that's not enough. I think we're going to bring charges and did against the same woeful defendant who probably regrets the fact that he chose that particular bank or didn't get a little bit of a longer longer sentence but the dual sovereignty idea is well the united states looks at what the state did and says we are not satisfied the civil rights division of course is empowered specifically to go after individuals who may have been convicted of some state crime dual sovereignty i commend to you by the way a very intriguing brief which i just happened to run across by senator orrin hatch and it's an amicus brief in this case urging the court to take a second look at dual sovereignty and do you, i'm sorry i'm talking in code double jeopardy you can't charge the same person with the same crime right double jeopardy All you shall not be this is a basic right uh, under the bill of rights uh, but anyway, Orrin Hatch, the, the the canopy under which he writes this uh, brief uh, is the over of federal law. And there's been such a vast over as he sees it, federalizing of criminal law that should belong to the states, that the court should take a second look at the doctrine it created. There's nothing in the Constitution that says there shall be dual sovereignty. It's a natural uh, conclusion emerging from our federal structure. It makes sense, right? You've got a U.S. attorney, you've got a district attorney. Uh, with respect to the duty of the president, uh, you're so thoughtful in raising that question to, because I do take the provocative position that it was wrong ethically, For President Bill Clinton to side with three fraud artists, Jim and Susan McDougall, uh, and Jim Guy Tucker. But his law firm was actively involved in working against a federal prosecution. To me, that raises tensions with the idea of the faithful execution of the laws. I think the president just has to, as a matter of ethics and ultimate sort of ultra-constitutional responsibility, to say, I step aside. I can have my lawyers protect me, but I can't have them standing in the way of a duly authorized federal prosecution.
2: Okay. So with that, let me – let's call this gentleman right here. Raise your hands if you're behind one of the polls. Stick your hand to the side so I can see you. Uh, But wait until we get a microphone to you. Uh, Armin Choksi, given what has been said about uh, the fact that the Mueller investigation started under an intelligence operation rather than a criminal one, and given that the regulations, as you claim by the DOJ, is that a criminal investigation is necessary or a criminal evidence of a crime is necessary, can there be a legitimate case made against, a legal
1: case made against the Mueller investigation? that it is illegitimate?
0: I think not. And uh, one of the neat things about the regulations that we didn't cover, but we probably should say up front, is that the very last of the regulations says, much like the the first page of the uh, US Attorney's Manual says, uh, that the the fact that they've laid out regulations does not create rights that are enforceable for anyone against the Justice Department. So in a sense, the, the department can take – I think the department is obliged to follow the regulations, but they can take them as if they were basically
1: suggestions, I think. May I add? Please. Uh, I think there's inherent authority in the senior officers of the Justice Department for the uh, attorney general to say this needs to be done uh, in the public interest. By the way, in the book, I have uh, a very detailed conversation <laughs> – about should we have gone in the Clinton case again for impeachment uh, or should we have had a more serious conversation about a lesser remedy such as the sanction, a resolution, or a a sanction of censure. Some historical precedent, not deep, not rich, but of Andrew Jackson who responded to a censure uh, of the Congress by authoring a brilliant refutation of the power of the Congress to do anything but impeach. It's impeach or let alone. What I think the Clinton episode teaches us is there are certain kinds of criminal offenses. What is a high crime or misdemeanor? There's a lot of conversation about that. But clearly, perjury is a crime. Obstruction of justice is a crime. But I think the issue there was the nexus. Did those crimes... That were proven we believe beyond a reasonable doubt were basically accepted yes he committed those crimes is there a sufficient nexus with the conduct of office of the president so you have a criminal go back to my hypothetical the assault and battery against the hapless cynical caddy that doesn't seem to to, we really need to impeach the president for that well, how about a resolution of censure? So there is this question of fit of 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 custom. Uh, the final thing I'll say is I think that the department, though this will be, this will be resolved under this court, not necessarily this term, but the department's interpretation of its own regulations are entitled a sort of Uber deference. So if the Deputy Attorney General reads this inherent authority on the one hand, and then this is just the way I interpret those, is not as expressio unius is exclusio, oh, I love that, (laughs) alterius. You know, Scalia is so proud. You know, you've got to use some Latin every now and then. But to include one isn't to exclude the other. And so I think some combination of that would cause Rod Rosenstein to rest easily at night. Just for
2: the sake of completeness, I would just point out for your edification that I know there's going to be an argument upcoming in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. So someone received a grand jury subpoena. I think his name is Andrew Miller. I could be wrong about that. From uh, Mueller, he refused to comply with that uh, grand jury subpoena. He turned over documents, but he refused to testify. He's been held in contempt, and that contempt has been held in abeyance while he appeals. And his argument essentially is is that uh, that, uh, Bob Mueller... Uh, as an outside private lawyer, was not properly appointed in accordance with the appointments clause and that Rod Rosenstein, who is not the attorney general, uh, could not appoint him and that, therefore, uh, this investigation is void ab initio because he wasn't properly – I'm not talking about the merits of that, but I know that argument is taking place. And I was, of course, curious, uh, Ken, when you talk about censure as as an alternative – that that's, of course, after they declined to convict President Clinton, that that's what they ended up settling on. And your successor, uh, Robert Ray, I guess, settled for center by a judge. And I guess it was Susan Webber, Wright. Well, it
1: was a finding, and thus the name of the book. Uh, The name of the book, Contempt, uh, emerges out of the fact that uh, President Clinton is the only president, uh, thankfully, in American history to have been found and held in contempt of court. Uh, uh, and he did not appeal that, uh, uh, judgment of contempt for the way he conducted himself in the civil case.
2: Right. Next question. back here.
1: Uh, Mike Irosius, Um, will we, will we ever
0: see the mandate that, um, uh, Bob Mueller Mueller is actually working under
1: and Mr. Starr was your mandate ever revealed to the public? I can answer. Yes, mine was, uh, and uh, and the expansions were were made publicly uh, available. Andy, do you want to speak to the Mueller mandate? Uh, I,
0: yeah, I, I think, I hope eventually we'll see it. I know Congress is pushing to see it. I think we should already have seen it. Um, the the state of play is, uh, and I and I guess I should fill out the the facts. After um, Rosenstein appointed Mueller, in, uh, it was on May 17th of 2017, uh, there was a lot of uh, noise raised. I made some of it myself, but there's a lot of other people making the same kinds of sounds, uh, <laughs> that that the appointment was not supported by an underlying crime. And I think between that line of criticism and the fact that they were about to bring charges or at least were clearly contemplating charges against at least Paul Manafort and were, I think, wisely anticipating that some of these claims would be made. Uh, The deputy attorney general then fleshed out Mueller's uh, jurisdiction in a memo of August the 2nd. And the only parts of the memo we've been allowed to see, I think it's a if I'm remembering right, it's a it's it's fairly short. It's about a two two and a half page memo at the most. Um, but the only parts we've been able to see are the the two passages that deal with Manafort. So I would guess it I would estimate about four fifths of it has still been withheld. I don't understand why I, my, my understanding is they what they're can they say they're concerned about is they don't want to um, prejudice uncharged people and they don't want to compromise the government's investigation. I think you could handle the prejudice uncharged people by simply redacting the names out. And as far as, uh, you know, prejudicing the government's investigation, at this point it seems to me that uh, in most investigations, secrecy uh, is, is very important and should be a priority. In an investigation where the president has been operating under a cloud for two years, I think that should take a backseat to to trying to clarify what the status of the presidency is. Um, but I, in in any event, my view, for what it's worth, and I could – maybe this will all be shown someday, and, and I'll be totally wrong about this, but I think they relied on the Steele dossier in fleshing out the – jurisdiction of the special counsel. There's certainly indications of that in what we've seen about it from Manafort, because one of the passages on Manafort that we're allowed to see says the allegations that Manafort colluded with Russia in the interference in the 2016 election. I don't know of any other evidence. Now, there could be some. You always have to to qualify that the, the government knows a lot more than we do about its investigation. But I know of no other evidence connecting Manafort to Russian cyber espionage in connection with the investigation, uh, the election rather, other than what's in the Steele dossier. And I suspect that the Steele dossier was used. Wh- wh- whoever other, whatever other people are named in that memorandum, I'm, I'm, intuiting that the the dossier was used, and that would be a fairly explosive fact if they had to reveal it.
1: Down here. Thank you, uh, Leon Peace. Um, my question is, in, with respect to the uh, what used to be the dual prosecution policy at the Department of Justice, under these circumstances, would the political um, factors also be considered, uh, either formally or informally, uh, as in the ap- in the application of that uh, dual prosecution policy? Dual sovereignty. Oh, go. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Are you talking about the dual sovereignty question? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. The microphone's coming back. I apologize. Yeah, sorry. yeah there there used to be a, a policy called the dual prosecution policy, whereas the uh, there wouldn't be any additional prosecution. Yeah,
0: I, I I think I understand what you mean. I I did a number of these cases. Because in the sovereign district, anything is possible, and including eviscerating double jeopardy, if that's what's necessary to do justice. Um, Why are we laughing? <laughs> um, I really did mean that as a joke, by the way. Um, <laughs> but but there, you're quite right. There was a policy that, that uh, stated that the presumption is that once a prosecutor has his shot at you, that's it. And that the Justice oh, Department doesn't hop in every single time there's a dual sovereignty situation. Now, let me tell you the, the kinds of dual sovereignty cases I had. The one I think that was closest to the line was I had an undercover police officer who was shot um, in the back during a drug buy. Could not identify the shooter who he, he never saw. It was a hooded person and who, who shot him in the back. Um, The jury acquitted in the Bronx, shockingly, (laughs) Um, and the DEA and the NYPD came to us and asked us um, to consider bringing that case again. And there were other charges. It wasn't a straight-up double jeopardy question because they were involved in a narcotics organization, so there was a way to charge it so that it wasn't black and white double jeopardy. (laughs) But we did have to go through the the Internal Justice Department process. And on that occasion they found that it was a serious enough serious enough misconduct and they had other circumstances where um they allowed us to do it. But it was not a it was not a slam dunk. I mean, there's a lot of back and forth about whether we should be allowed to do it. And and by the way, even when you're allowed to do it, in terms of a jury trial, uh juries don't like dual sovereignty cases, at least in in my experience. They don't like the idea that the feds kind of sit back and and wait to see what happens and then somebody has a full shot at at, at a trial in the in a state court and then the feds come in and, and put you through a second trial. My experience at
1: least is that juries have a lot of trouble with that. <laughs> oh, well, I was going to say, with respect to because the underlying uh, issue that you identified uh, in your thoughtful question, uh, was do political considerations enter uh, into this, and Andy has been on the front line. Uh, I would say that uh, history is teaching us that politics is always driving the issue of the appointment of the special prosecutor, always. Indeed, that was true in Whitewater. Whitewater came to be as an investigation because the President of the United States, during international travel, made the political judgment that a special counsel, we would now call that person, should be appointed. So Bob Fisk, very able former uh, United States attorney for the Sovereign District of New York, uh, a partner of Davis Polk in, in New York, wonderful law firm, great uh, lawyer, was appointed in January of 1994 by Janet Reno on the direction of the President of the United States. It was not her assessment under any regulations or otherwise. Now, again, this was during an interregnum or an interim period when the independent counsel law was not in effect. Uh, when you look back in time at the different uh, uh, appointments of special prosecutors, it's- Always driven by politics and a sense that we need honest government. There may have been wrongdoing and so forth Here is the key challenge for the special counsel and the independent counsel How do you free the investigation? completely from politics neither fear nor favor and what are the guardrails that you can build in that provide public assurance that the administration of criminal justice is free of politics it's especially difficult to accomplish that no matter what kinds of internal safeguards you have and are on investigation as i say we had a very elaborate indictment review process that not only mirrored and echoed what the public integrity section of the criminal division of the justice department uh, does uh, and and wisely so. It's not just the discretion of, well, here's the investigation team. They've been given uh, uh, the authority to go forward if the evidence uh, says, no, no. We're going to review that in Washington, <laughs> D.C., if you're going after Congressperson X in, in California. It's not up to the Central District of California, et cetera. So there are these built-in guardrails, but I think where the independent counsel law utterly failed is even when we would bring in these guardrails, such as super indictment review. And one of the reasons that, as I describe in the book, we did not go forward with an indictment against Hillary Rodham Clinton, even though we were persuaded she had committed crimes in Arkansas. That's a pretty significant thing to conclude. But this has not been made known until last month. I don't think the American people knew that. Well, why didn't you indict or seek an indictment, the little rock grand jury, before it expired in May of 1998? Because we went through a very elaborate indictment review process and participating in that. Ah, here's one of my guardrails, Sam Dash, the Democrat (laughs) counsel to the Senate Select Committee. But it's very hard for that to get out at all and to provide any kind of assurance that this is not, quote, a rogue prosecution that's politically inspired.
2: So I'm not predicting this will happen, but I'll tell you where I think the dual sovereign doctrine could be involved in terms of this investigation, uh, which is that there's been speculation or fear in some quarters that the president might choose to pardon Paul Manafort and Michael Cohen, and of course his pardon authority is limited to federal crimes, so New York authorities, I know, immediately said, oh, well, we're going to investigate them too, and of course if they ended up charging them and convicting them of crimes, that would be something the president could not pardon them for. But I'm not saying that's going to happen, but right. that would very much uh, implicate the, the dual sovereignty. Yes, uh, very much. So let me ask uh, one of the questions. You talked about how politics are are inevitable in, in terms of this, and we're, we're coming up to a midterm election, and you know, the, 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 independ- the, the independent counsel, special counsel, his investigation continues apace. Some Prosecutors have chosen to say, all right, we're going to have a buffer period and not do anything. Uh, others, most the one that comes immediately to mind was Lawrence Walsh and Iran Contra indicting Casper Weinberger on the eve of the uh, Clinton-Bush uh, election. What, how, does this, how does this play and should this play in terms of how uh, Bob Mueller proceeds for at least the next little while?
1: I'm happy to take the first uh, crack because uh, as has has been revealed during the Brett Kavanaugh uh, hearings, uh, but happily this was eclipsed, uh, not happily, but the issues surrounding his distinguished service in the independent counsel's office got eclipsed by other other, uh, questions. I mean, during the main confirmation uh, process. But I was uh, insistent that we get the referral out as promptly as possible after the president's testimony uh, of uh, uh, August uh, uh, 1994. And uh, we did get it out right after Labor Day, September 9, 1994. And the very reason was we had the midterm elections coming up. So Justice Department policy is, in fact, to be mindful of the democratic process and to time, if at all possible, the exigencies of the honest administration of justice may eclipse this, but you try your best not to interfere with the democratic process. Um, That certainly is
0: true. I've always had um, difficulty with this. I mean, it's, it's clearly Justice Department Policy, So it doesn't matter if an individual prosecutor has a problem with it, but uh, it has always just seemed to me that not doing something that should be done and that is ripe to be done is equally as bad as, as doing something rash in the period of time in the run up to the election, um, that can have an effect on the election, um, so I, I've never been crazy about that policy. But even people who think like I do don't think that you should drop an indictment like two days before the election. So, you know, it's obviously the rule of reason applies. Um, I, I, it, I I don't think it seems to me from from um, the the course of Special Counsel Mueller's investigation that it's winding down and that we've probably seen the charges we're going to see. I don't think he ever would have um, given his report to uh, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein under circumstances where people would be demanding it in that period right before the election. I think he would wait until after the election for that. But from what we've been able to see, um, you know, he's brought a couple of indictments against groups of Russians, that seem to cut against the idea that there was a conspiracy with people on the American side. Um, the, the cases against Manafort, which are unrelated to the to the real mandate of Mueller's investigation, have wound down now and, and been closed out. There doesn't seem to be anything else on the horizon. What we see is the cases that he has brought are being um, transferred to other components of the Justice Department. One of the Russian cases went to the National Security Division. Another one went either to the Eastern District of Virginia or the District of Columbia. I don't remember which. And the other thing we see is that there are some reports that a number of people in his, on his staff have started to go back to the jobs from which they came in the first place. So it's got us at least Objectively, looking at it, to me, it seems to have a, a sense of uh, of winding down. It doesn't look to me like the kind of gearing up that you would see, I think, if you were going to see
1: big charges. Well, uh, Andy is following this very closely, and as the one contributor to uh, a closely watched uh, network, I defer entirely uh, to him. Um, uh, I do think this, I think that the public has underappreciated the power of those indictments and they're indictments their charges but they are speaking indictments they are very detailed and when one reads those indictments the inference one naturally draws is no collusion doesn't say there was no conclusion you wouldn't expect that but the natural most reasonable inference to be drawn from the two indictments at least from this reader and I read them carefully is zero collusion to the contrary <laughs> They duped some people, right, and just the, the series of crimes that were committed just cry out for uh, condemnation of what the Russians uh, did. According to the indictment, I know, presumption of innocence, even if uh, <laughs> you're a Russian <laughs> uh, individual who comes here under these false pretenses and so forth, commits crimes to get in the country, commits crimes in the country and so forth. But I think he has done a great service to the to the public by doing the work, Andy will understand it far better than I will, doing the necessary work to say this is what happened during the presidential campaign. One of my favorite examples is when these Russian thugs were uh, funding both a pro-Trump rally and an anti-Trump rally in New York on the same day. (laughs) I don't call that taking sides. (laughs) Isn't that sort of hedging your bets or something?
2: Well, to those of you who are here, uh, we have copies of Judge Starr's book, uh, Outside for Sale. I'm sure he'd be delighted to stick around and sign uh, one for you. And I'm afraid we've run out of time. So please join me in thanking our panelists.
1: Thank you. I Thank you. you. I want to
2: take this <laughs>